What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I hope you're all doing well out there in your various states of isolation. Hopefully, you're all using this time and finding ways to uh, be productive, to get organized, to work on those things that maybe you've been putting off or haven't had the time to uh, devote to uh, up until now. It's uh, not a great situation for anyone, of course, but uh, there are silver linings. So I hope you're all uh, finding them in some way. Anyways, my guest today is Maxime Bernier. He is the leader of the People's Party of Canada. Uh, and Maxime, professionally speaking, earlier in his career, he was a lawyer and a banker and got into politics. He uh, served under the Conservative Party for a number of years. A couple of years ago, he was in the leadership race uh, for the Conservative Party and lost a very narrow decision to the now leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, gaining uh, 49% to his 51 And subsequent to that, he formed the People's Party of Canada because he believed that the important issues uh, facing Canadians, the Canadian economy, uh, were not being addressed. And that, uh, unsurprisingly, everyone was just playing politics and pandering to special interest groups, and nobody was voicing nor addressing the real issues. And that's why he started the People's Party of Canada, and uh, he's been uh, trying to push uh, that platform forward of speaking the truth and leading with freedom and responsibility and respect um, since that time. And fairness, sorry, that's the the fourth pillar of the platform. In any case, I came across Max um, when I returned home to Canada in November. I think I caught just, you know, was walking by, TV was on, and I saw some of the debates. And I was struck that uh, a politician was saying things that at least I thought were were truthful and that not many people had the courage to say. And so I learned more about Max and followed him since that time and uh, had heard him speak about sound money and, you know, the Keynesian-Austrian dichotomy of economics and what was happening around the world today, especially in light of the coronavirus with, you know, the stimulus packages that are being put together and all the money printing going on. And so I thought, you know, I got to speak to this guy. It would be I'd love the opportunity to speak with this guy. And so I reached out to his team and they got back to us. They said they'd love to. So uh, we, we put it together. We speak for about an hour and 10 minutes. A uh, little bit about Max's background, um, the leadership race, kind of what it's been like to try to be a politician, to speak the truth rather than just what's popular um, at the time, um, even if it means you lose support from your constituents or the people that you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to promote yourself to. Um, and then, of course, we went on to talk about sound money. And then the last part was uh, a back and forth of gold and Bitcoin. And um, Max is very open to Bitcoin. He hasn't done much uh, reading or study on it yet. But uh, as you'll see in the show, he has agreed to um, receive a gift from me. And I think that will uh, certainly help him on his way to understanding Bitcoin better. Anyways, uh, that's it. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's do it. Okay, let's go. Well, Maxime, thank you very much for joining me today. It's uh, it's a distinct pleasure to be able to get the chance to speak with you. Um, but of course, my uh, audience is is more than just Canada. So before we get rolling, there's so many things to talk about going on today. Can I just get a brief kind of synopsis of your career, both in the political sphere as well as in the private sector? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, 
Uh, I'm, um, I'm a lawyer by profession. I work in a financial sector and in a banking sector before being in politics. Um, I work, uh, I think it was 10 years with the National Bank in, in Montreal. I was VP over there. And also I worked for an insurance corporation, Standard Life, uh, based in UK. Um, so before working for um, uh, the the bank, uh, the national bank. So I have a full background in banking and insurance. And after that, I decided in 2006 to uh, jump into politics. Uh, I've been elected in a, my riding in both uh, for the last uh, 30 years. I was not elected the last uh, at the last election. I was defeat, um, but uh, you know I'm still the leader of the People's Party of Canada. And at the next election, I will for sure um, be uh, running. I don't know where, I don't know in which riding will decide that. The most important for us right now is to be sure that uh, we'll find the right uh, riding for me. Um, the country is huge, as you know. Uh, I hope I'll be able to run in Quebec or maybe outside Quebec. We'll see. But right now, what I'm doing, you know, I'm pushing the freedom ideas and a more responsible government and a smaller government. And also, I think I can say that I'm not the only politician in Ottawa uh, who uh, understand the monetary policy and the impact of uh, uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus. Uh, that I don't like, you know, what the central bank did a couple of years ago. It's not, it wasn't the right policy at that time, but we'll have time to discuss that. So, yes, I, I'm a, I was an entrepreneur before being in politics. And, you know, I decided to be in politics because I wanted to uh, fight for what I believe, individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect and fairness. And um, I left the Conservative Party of Canada. I was a minister uh, under Stephen Harper government in Canada. And I decided to uh, create the People's Party uh, a year and a half ago uh, because, you know, I was not happy with uh, the, the platform and, and the ideas that the uh, Conservative Party of Canada uh, was at that time before the election uh, arguing for. And all the ideas that they put in their platform, it was not what I believe. They, they're, they're like the liberal, and I like to call them the LibCon party, the liberal and the conservative in Canada. So we create the People's Party based on principles, based on the strong principles and a strong vision for more freedom and a smaller government in Ottawa. Uh, we had 1.6% of the vote. At the last election, uh, 300,000 people voted for us. I think it's good for the beginning because, uh, as you may know, the Green Party in Canada, uh, it took them uh, more than uh, 20 years to be able to uh, have more than 6% of the votes. Uh, sorry, more than 1% of the votes. And we did that in less than a year. So I think uh, the future is great for us. We just have to be our there and push our ideas yeah i uh i i love that and and i i love your platform and uh, you know what you just said and i think it's important for context for for listeners to know that uh, you did uh you were in the leadership race for the conservative party yeah. correct and uh that was a very close race i think you lost by less than a percentage point or around a percentage point uh, absolutely yes 49 uh, percent right and and uh Sorry, go ahead. And the winner, Andrew Shear, had 51%. So it was a very close race. I was, the, I think, the only real conservative free market uh, uh, candidates at that time. 
And um, yes, I, I tried to, we had a platform that was very popular and I tried to push uh, these ideas to the new leadership uh, at uh, Andrew Shear. And when the party told me that they didn't want to uh, take any of our ideas, so I said, you know, I don't have to, I don't have time to, to waste there. And that's why we created the People's Party with uh, these ideas that I put forward during that leadership contest. Yeah. You know, your whole approach to all this brings to mind that famous quote. I can't remember who says it right now, but uh, it goes something like, in a time of universal deceit, speaking the truth is a revolutionary act. <laughs> and, uh, and I say this because, I've, as I said, I've been living away for the last decade. I've been in, in Shanghai, China, and yeah. in Thailand for most of that time. And I came back in November of 2019. Yeah. And I was here, you know, I've occasionally, I, you know, I don't know how, the, how you'll feel about this, but I think many in my generation are disenchanted with, the, you know, politics in general. And I, I came across some of the, the, the media coverage of um, the race, as well as some of the debates. And you, what you were saying caught my attention because it was the first time in a very long time I'd heard a politician saying the uncomfortable truths, you know, as I thought they were. Of course, everybody has a different uh, idea of what the truth is. But I was hearing you, you know, speaking with rationale and with logic and reason, irrespective of who you might offend or which vote voting block you may, um, you know, may vote against you as a result of saying those things. And I thought that was incredibly courageous. And not surprisingly, um, the media, the mainstream media seized upon a lot of the things that you were saying and spun them in an incredibly disingenuous way. And so, you know, I saw, and I would see these things that would call, and again, I'm not obviously not promoting these things, but I would see you be called a xenophobic or <laughs> racist or far right. And then I would compare that with the actual words that you were either speaking or in your writings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the obvious conclusion is nothing could be further from the truth. And it's just another example of how the mainstream media twist things to serve either their own interests or the interests of the people with whom they're aligned with. And so, you know, I've got a couple of questions off the back of that. But the first yeah. is just, what is it like to, to have, you know, the, the, the truth that you're trying to speak and know that you're coming from a genuine place, mm -hmm. to have it so twisted in the public eye and have, to have so many people misinterpret what you're saying? Yeah, that was a tough uh, campaign because, as you just said, we had a strong, we have, and we had at that time. It's the same platform, a very strong platform, and based on ideas. And my opponent, not only the mainstream media, but the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, uh, did everything to uh, discredit the People's Party and us. And yes, they were saying that we were racist because we just want to say no to mass immigration. We wanted and we want our country to control our borders. I think a nation, uh, a nation must always control uh, our, their borders. And we, we are arguing for less uh, and fewer immigrants. So that was not the narrative in the mainstream media. They, they were not used to that. And uh, they were saying because of that, that uh, we were a racist party. But no, actually in Quebec, it was a little bit more easier. Uh, our immigration platform was more well received because um, at the provincial level in Quebec, as you know, it's the francophone uh, part of Canada. Uh, I'm coming from, from uh, Quebec. And so people are used to have that debate about identity 
about immigration. And actually, uh, the, uh, the government now in power in Quebec uh, with the premier, Mr. Legault, uh, did a campaign on the fewer immigrants and he won that campaign. But outside Quebec, I think we were the first one to start that debate about uh, nationalism and sovereignty and controlling our borders and uh, less immigration. And that was a kind of a shock uh, for the mainstream media. So my opponent uh, used that to try to brand us as a racist party. Uh, so that's why it was a little bit diffi difficult in the mainstream media because I was always on the defensive mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't have a lot of chances to explain our platform. But, um, you know, when you don't win, and I didn't win in my own writing in Bose because, you know, I took some uh, position like uh, the abolition of the supply management system in Canada. That's the system that's a, a socialist system that is a protection for farmers, dairy farmers and poultry farmers. And uh, mm -hmm. so they, they control the market and they fix the price. And uh, we consumers are paying twice the price for egg, poultry and, uh, and cheese in our country. So I was fighting against that for the consumers. But in my writing, you know, that's a writing, a rural writing. And uh, we, uh, we have the most dairy producers and they were very uh, uh, motivated to go out there and to vote uh, against me and also to speak against me. So I didn't win my own riding because uh, I think a part of that special interest group. But not winning when you, when you stick to your principles, uh, I think it's an honorable uh, defeat. And uh, so I decided to go on and to continue to uh, uh, fight for what I think is best for this country. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And I've read the, the, the chapter that you uh, published on your website regarding yeah. the supply management uh, system, which you know most people are not familiar with, especially outside of Canada. But yeah. basically, it's a price-fixing cartel that you know the government supports um, th that industry at the expense of lower prices, more options, better competition in that in that industry yeah. for for everybody. Um, and I remember having read in that chapter where you and your your advisor uh, Martin, Martin Martin, yeah had been going back and forth and, you know, and I get it because it's a very real consideration, you know, in the game of politics, you, these are, these are questions and you're the kind of tug of war you were dealing with inside was, should I not come out with my criticism of this system in order to secure those votes or at least not turn as many yeah. people away from me? Or should I stick to my guns and my principles and just say, no, I don't want to play this political game anymore. I want to play principles, not politics. And I want to say what it is I feel is the truth. Because long term, that's what's going to endear people to me. And that's what's going to allow people to trust me. And I thought, you know, that is such a rare attitude, sentiment, approach uh, in, in politics today that, you know, again, it's, a, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you and one of the reasons why I respect you so much. But one, you know, one of the challenges that, you know, I encounter when I discuss, you know, a variety of different topics with people is that in today, I feel like, you know, we have a dynamic that is, you know, to generalize twofold. One is that I think a lot of people are ideologically possessed. You know, they haven't gone through the rigor of critical thinking and education for themselves. They've just, you know, heard a, a stance or a, an opinion on a certain subject and, adopted it as if it was their own. And as a result, they have a reflexive response when these things come up. The flip side of that, or the, you know, in combination with that, is that a lot of, a lot of these subjects can be somewhat um, 
complex. You know, we're going to get into an economic and monetary discussion yeah. here in a little while. And, and that, you know, for most people, they're just simply not interested. And even if they are, do they have the time? Do they have the resources? All of these kinds of things. And I, you know, what's it like for you knowing that your, your part of your success and your popularity is directly predicated on how educated the people that you're trying to appeal to are? It's all fine and good to talk about free markets and sound money and all this stuff. But when most people don't have any appreciation for that at all, it's got to be very difficult to both educate and promote yourself simultaneously. Yeah, it is, it is a challenge. And I just want to go back to what you said about what I wrote in that chapter uh, concerning supply management. Uh, you're right. Uh, I had a lot. I had a lot of discussion at that time with Martin Mas. Uh, Martin Mas uh, is my political advisor, uh, my friend also, and uh, and um, you know, for me, it was a, a kind of a tough decision to go. And, and I know inside of me that that policy of uh, the cartel for supply management for dairy, poultry, uh, and eggs was not the right thing for Canadian consumers. But being out there as a politician and say that publicly and being the only elected politician to speak against that, knowing that in my writing, you know, I, I won't, um, it would be very difficult for me to have the support of these people, uh, these farmers. Uh, so we had a couple of discussion, and like I wrote in the book, um, in the chapter, uh, you know, Martin tried to convince me, and uh, so I was hesitating in the beginning, and at the end I said, you know, I'm there for what I believe, so, you know, go ahead, and uh, I was, I I'm still very uh, happy that uh, I took that decision. Yes, I didn't win my riding, but at the end, um, that was the right decision. And, and we'll see what would be the future. But as a politician, it's always a little bit difficult to try to win votes and knowing that doing something you will not please uh, these uh, people or that special interest group. And that's why, you know, I was very hard against uh, political correctness. And I said during that campaign that, you know, we are working for all Canadians and, and, and that's important without trying to buy votes with uh, your money and try to please to a special interest group. And I think the more I'm speaking about that, the better the people understand uh, our philosophy. And like you said, you know, it's a kind of uh, education. People must know that uh, there's no free lunch uh, in this country. There's never uh, a free lunch and uh, you have mm -hmm. to pay for everything that the politicians uh, are, are giving you. So speaking about uh, against the political correctness and, and showing people that, you know, we can have a better country if we have policies that will be, uh, that will be the same for everybody and uh, fair, fair for everybody. Uh, that, that was important uh, in, that, uh, in the creation of the People's Party. And that's why we our four principles are individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect and fairness. And, and our goal is to have all our policies that are in line with uh, our principles. And that's, mm -hmm. that's why we have a coherent uh, platform. And, uh, but we have a lot of education to do. Uh, but that's what I like also at the same time. Yeah. I, those four principles that you just mentioned, I think they're you know, phenomenal principles on which to base a platform and, and through which, you know, as a lens to look at policy implementations. Uh, but, you know, one of the one responsibility, this is, uh, this is a subject I like talking about. It's talked a lot about 
with the, the audience that listens to my show uh, and in the Bitcoin and sound money space, yeah. generally libertarian, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like today the state has become so large and so influential in our lives that so many people, without knowing it subconsciously, have uh, relinquished so much of uh, their responsibility, whether it be financial, whether it be related to health, whether it be related to education. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to imagine how to turn around that mindset where people are becoming increasingly dependent on the state for so many things. And I'm curious, uh, you know, to get your opinion on, aside from the work you're doing and trying to educate and articulate these principles and, and in the political sphere, how do you see that dynamic, that mindset getting turned around? Uh, it is it is a huge challenge for politicians, but um, you know when you speak the truth, uh, what you believe in, with passion and with conviction, at the end you will win. Uh, at the end, the best ideas will win. I like the debate of ideas, uh, and that's what I'm doing on uh, as a politician: debate ideas. Uh, but but yes, um, sometimes it's uh, it's difficult because people think that uh, you know when I said during that uh, coronavirus crisis that we'll have to pay for all these uh, subsidies and everything. People uh, don't want to hear that right now. And I said, yes, we must do our best to uh, be sure that that crisis won't be uh, won't be for a year, uh, and we're doing everything for the public health. But at the same time, we must have a discussion about the cost of all that and and the impact of all these measures, uh, considering that we are in a recession right now. Uh, but yeah, I think it's my goal to speak about that. Uh, maybe I'm the only one, but uh, <laughs> at the end, people will will understand. Uh, and I hope they will turn at us, at the People's Party, and saying, you know, Bernie said that for the last 10 years, and I think he believed in it. And yes, <laughs> I believe in, in what I'm saying. So, so I think at the end, we'll be able to have more support. And that's the most important. Yeah. And just for anyone listening, you just said Bernier, not Bernie. I think because yeah. when when you first said it, I thought, did he just say Bernie? But Bernier, Bernier, uh, yeah, that's my. I pronounce it in English, Bernier in French, Maxime Bernier. I said Bernier yeah, because I just didn't want anyone to be yeah. to be. No, no, I'm, I'm the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, but you br you bring up the uh, the current crisis, and I think you know we should spend a little time talking about that. You know, just along these lines, as a segue, you know, one of the things obviously I'm afraid of is that. During this time, the private sector is being, uh, well, effectively hollowed out, e either because a lot of uh, small to medium-sized businesses are going out of business, and of course, they aren't the ones to receive the big bailouts. And then, of course, the, the people who have jobs in the public sector with the government, their jobs are protected. So I, 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 I'm scared that what we're going to see is an acceleration of the trend that existed prior to the crisis. But what we'll see if we come out of the crisis um, and if we can kick the can down the road even further, what, we, what we'll probably see is even more zombie companies on the, on the larger scale of things, a hollowing out of the small to medium-sized businesses in the private sector that actually create value and create jobs. And then when people are, are making these economic calculations in their head, you know, where should I seek employment? You look at one place and you say job security, good hours, great benefits, all the rest of it. 
um, in, in the public sector with the government. Yeah. And I'm afraid that what we have an even greater and, and quite rapid push toward more people prioritizing or desiring um, you know, a career in the public sector. And I think that, you know, as you would probably agree, the, the, you know, the government doesn't create value. They allocate, they take yeah. in capital and they allocate it. And I would say inefficiently. And yeah. so what, you know, what economically in terms of this, uh, this crisis, what do you think are, are some of the, the big risks and, and the mistakes that are, or you know, what are, what's your take on what's happening economically as a result of the crisis? Yeah. Uh, but first, your question must be, which crisis? Because I think we have two crises right now. We have the coronavirus crisis and the economic crisis. And, um, and so people didn't realize, but uh, the coronavirus crisis, uh, that was the pin who break the, who pick, uh, what's the expression, um, break the bubbles. Right. Uh, and so the, the big problem that we have right now, it's all the debts and, and the accumulation of uh, uh, debts and, and, and spending by the government before the crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at what, what happened right now in Canada, uh, the total uh, debt to the GDP ratio in Canada, it's uh, more than 300%. That's one of the the biggest uh, debt to GDP, GDP ratio, uh, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's a corporation, their total debt to GDP, it's about 100%. Uh, households, it's about also 100%. And if you had provincial at the provincial level in Canada and the federal government, it's also a debt to the GDP about around 100%. So big, we, had, we have right now a huge debt public debt and private debt. And that's coming from bad monetary policies when you had for 10 years artificially low interest rates. So I think that's the basis. That's why we have, uh, will have uh, uh, an economic uh, recession. Uh, I think we are in a recession right now. So mm-hmm. now the government and answering your question, the government is putting more money outside, more lower the central bank in Canada and around the world are putting uh, their interest rate to the floor. So with artificially low interest rate and uh, easy money, uh, and, and, and they are asking governments like in Canada and in US to spend money, spend money to stimulate the economy. But we know, like you just said, to be uh, Richard, we need to produce. You know, you work, you produce, you get paid and you spend. That's not the opposite. Right now, they're giving money to everybody, but we have more money and less production. So that will end in inflation and in the loss of our purchasing power. So you won't be able to buy the same uh, amount of goods and and services with the money that you have in your pocket because it will be depreciated. So I'm looking at what the government are doing. I'm looking at what the federal government is doing right now in Canada. Yes, having targeted measures to help uh, people on the short term, term, I'm okay with that. But uh, now it's uh, they opened the, <laughs> the, the door to everything and uh, our deficit in Canada in a year from now can be, uh, in a year, sorry, can be uh, about uh, 100 uh, billion dollars. So we, I, I will, um, I'll be okay if the government 
have only targeted measures and, and short-term measures. But right now, they, they will try to uh, bail out corporations, and, and I think that's not the solution. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that, you know, that I'm concerned about is that I think we'll probably have it depends how effective this time around the money printing and the debt is, you know, because in 2008, that's exactly what the response was. Uh, so, I, you know, who knows how the markets will digest this round of stimulus and all of this uh, low interest rates. You know, we obviously policymakers think it'll be just fine and we'll come out the back of it and we'll stimulate and things will get on the same track. You know, I, I think, you know, a severe recession or even a depression could very easily be in the cards, especially if there's a loss of confidence in currencies or in, in debt markets or anything like that. But what I'm concerned about is that most people, you know, your average person, quote unquote, yeah. and not, you know, not trying to be demeaning in any way, but they will, they will think things were great before and that the reason why things are bad now is the crisis. And I feel like at least in the political sphere, this will allow the politicians to get away with the, the, the trouble that is to come because they'll just say, well, we couldn't control the virus. The virus yeah. is what, what did all this. And as you said, of course, it was the, the pin that, that pricked the bubble. The virus yeah. was a catalyst that pushed yeah. the timeline forward, but it didn't create these problems. Absolutely. And, and so you know, that gives me a great deal of concern. On the flip side, I wonder if there's ever a point you know, in the, U in the United States, of course, there's, you know, a lot of stimulus happening and a lot of measures taken to uh, try to stimulate the economy during these times. And I'm wondering if when people start hearing the word trillions and tens of trillions, how many people will start asking, where is this money coming from? How yeah. can the government just con conjure this out of thin air? Why am I paying taxes and why am I working, you know, my whole life to, to pay to put a roof over my head? If $10 trillion or $6 trillion or whatever the number ultimately becomes can just be created by the stroke of a pen or by a, a, a database entry, you know, by the government. And I, you know, and hopefully also with all the time spent at home right now, perhaps people are st spending some of that to learn about what's going on. Now, I'm not too hopeful of that. I think yeah. most of the time will be spent on Netflix and whatever else, but you never know, you know, this, this provides an opportunity to, to, for those people that just were too busy to think about these things more critically before, maybe it's a providing an opportunity to do so now. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, the governments and central banks, uh, what they are doing right now, it's not new. They did that in 2008. And after 2008, the last uh, decade, that was the worst decade in Canada after the 1930s, if you look at the uh, economic growth. So we had an average of about 2% uh, economic growth every year the last decade. So they didn't create anything. They didn't create wealth and they didn't create uh, real growth the last 10 years. So now they're doing the same thing. So that would be worse. But you're right. Politicians will say, you know, oh, it's not what we did before. Like Justin Trudeau just said yesterday, you know, we manage the economy pretty well. And, uh, you know, in uh, sunny days, we did what we had to do. And now we have money for the raining days. And that's not true. We had a huge deficit and Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau government added more than $100 billion on our debt the last uh, five years. So no, they didn't manage the budget <laughs> well. 
and so no we don't have any uh, rooms right now and we that's why we'll have a huge deficit of maybe 100 billion dollars so they will use like you said the crisis to say you know it's uh, it's the coronavirus crisis uh, that's why we are in, we have some problem in canada or all around the world but at the end uh, where where that money is coming from, I think you're right saying that uh, people may not realize that, you know, throwing billions of dollars and the, the experts are saying, you know, we're going to give liquidity to the market and all these buzzwords coming from the financial sector. Uh, maybe people don't know that it's printing money. But I'm pretty, uh, I was pretty um, uh, surprised by a piece in a French newspaper, La Presse, last weekend and the title of that uh, article was where that money is coming from and and the answer was just at the end and the uh, an economist said you know but you know uh, today's deficit will be tomorrow's taxes so we will have government will have to tax and maybe we can have inflation so at least at the end, they were, they were saying, you know, you will have to pay with higher taxes or it will be inflation. And as you know, inflation is a hidden tax. So you'll have to pay because you're going to lose some of your purchasing power. But at least at the end of that article in French, they were saying the truth. But we, we need to have more piece like that in different newspapers, but we, we don't have, they, that's not a question right now. People, I think the journalists, they, they maybe don't realize also, like a lot of people, that it's, you know, money is not, is not uh, falling from the sky or uh, grow on trees. So not, not yet, but it's about to, by the, by the sounds of things. Yeah, yeah now, now it's about to. So, so we'll see what will happen, but that's why I'm tweeting about that. I'm speaking about that. And I'm saying, you know, that will, we will have a cost to pay uh, and we all be poor if we have uh, um, inflation in, in our country. I'm not saying about two, three percent inflation. It can be a, a two digits inflation uh, rate. So that will hurt everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the unfortunate, one of the unfortunate, unfortunate aspects of this is, you know, there's been growing inequality for some time. And if we could just loosely, there's many variables, of course, but in the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of the stimulus went into asset prices, right? Stocks, bonds, real estate, these sorts of things. And having gone into there, you can kind of you're still going to get inflation in those asset prices, but the inflation doesn't show up as much in consumer goods. And yeah. so now it's shown up in public sector consumer goods, like the cost of education and the cost of healthcare and things like that. And, but, you know, people have a way, like if, my, if the cost of my bread doesn't go up, then I guess there's no inflation. I think most people generally think like that. Yeah. And, if you, and if you're able to, to own assets, then you benefit from it. And so you're not that, that upset about it. And you've got this growing inequality between the people that actually own assets that benefit from inflation and those that are more or less paycheck to paycheck and have to fund this inflation. What's interesting this time around, I think governments all over the world, and they're signaling this now, they're going to have to give money directly to citizens because they force them to stop working. Yeah. And so they have an obligation to give money directly. And if if that happens on even a, a moderate scale, 
I think then as a, after this deflationary period where a lot of, you know, a lot of debt, you know, there's, there is a, a drawdown of liquidity in the system. I think when the money gets in the hands, of, when this helicopter money gets in the hands of the people rather than asset prices, you know, and you can make the case that it should have gone there in the first place because why bail out the big companies and why yeah. put it into asset prices? Why not help the, the man on the street, the man or woman on the street? But once it gets in their hands, then I think we see, you know, inflation on a scale that probably nobody living today has experienced. Yeah, absolutely. Because the last time we have huge inflation, it was in 1980s and uh, 20, 20, 25% uh, interest rate uh, at that time. So, uh, and huge inflation, but people under 50 years old didn't uh, leave that. They didn't know about that. So, but uh, now uh, I think we have, there's a big risk with uh, uh, these, this kind of inflation in the future. But like you just said, before that, we may have deflation and, and you know, that's good. Uh, look, the price of uh, gas right now at the pump, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very low, so it's good for consumers. So you'll have some kind of uh, uh, price going down uh, on the short term. But uh, after that, uh, it may be uh, huge inflation. Yeah. And, and what, what, back to that kind of education argument we were having, and it's, not, it's only partially education because if you're someone who, who hasn't benefited from let's, you know, the money printing over the last decade, let's say, uh, and you have been paycheck to paycheck and things are increasingly getting expensive and you've just lost your job, you don't yeah. care about libertarianism, Austrian economics, yeah. sound money. You want a check to put food on the table. You can't yeah. think about being austere today so that you can have a, a, you know, a sounder economic model tomorrow. Yeah. And so the more people that wind up in that state, and I think the more people are because of what's happening, you know, the, the, the discourse, and, and again, this will obviously affect the political discourse greatly, nobody's going to give a shit about sound money. They, they're just going to want the check in the mail to come. And, you know, whatever happens five years down the line, 10 years down the line, well, we'll deal with it then. And so as, as a, a politician who has to speak about these things uh, publicly, how do you contend with, you know, the immediacy of people's needs versus what you know is, is a systemic, uh, you know, reworking that's required? But, you know, for, uh, you're, you're right, you know, people don't realize uh, what's happening right now and they will, when, when they will lose their purchasing power. At that time, they, they may realize, okay, so me as a politician, if people are saying in five years from now, you know, Bernie said that the last, I don't know, for the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, that may help me uh, for my political future, saying people say, oh, we, we can trust him, you know, he's, he, he's, he said that for so long time that, uh, you know, he, he will act on what he, he said in the past and what I'm saying right now. So uh, I will be seen as the politician who, who knows all that uh, monetary uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, central banking and all that. So for, but for the short term, I won't have that discussion with uh, mainstream media. Uh, they're not interested in that discussion. So my strategy is to use social media and doing interview with you and other people. And I have a new also uh, uh, YouTube channel, uh, the Max Bernier show. Uh, you 
can see it at uh, YouTube, the People's Party of Canada official YouTube channel. And I'm trying to speak about policies and e e the economy and so everything that is uh, affecting us in Canada. Uh, and I'm using the social media to promote that, to tell people, you know, you'll have to pay and we'll need to change that system because it is not sustainable for a long term. And, and on that topic, you know, you mentioned central bankers and obviously you've been working in, in, in politics for a number of years now. Are there any discussions? So forget the public discussions for a moment, but in, yeah. in, you know, in private circles, in the closed door meetings in government, as it were, um, are there any discussions about sound money? Oh, no. Or are politicians just far too motivated to keep that printer going to satisfy constituents and to get reelected and things of you know things like that? Uh, no, no, there's no there's no discussion like that at the political level. Uh, and when I was a member of the Conservative Party of Canada and we were in government, we didn't have that discussion. You know, monetary policy it's for the Bank of Canada, and the Bank of Canada is independent from political interference. So you don't have any discussion about monetary policy. I remember a time I said, because every in Canada, every five years, the finance minister signed an agreement with the Bank of Canada about their strategy for the next five years. And usually it's about the inflation target. And we were in government at that time and we had that discussion. And I said, you know, we must have an inflation target of 0%. Because, you know, inflation, it's not good. Why having 2% inflation? If it's so good, why not aiming to 20% inflation? <laughs> you know, and so, uh, but I was the only one and people was, no, no, no. And, and after that, the conservative government signed that agreement with the bank with an inflation target of 2%. Um, so there's absolutely no discussion. And, and politicians are not all like... Uh, ordinary Canadians. They don't know anything about monetary policy. So you don't have any discussion about that. And I didn't, my experience when I was in government, when I was in a caucus with conservative uh, colleagues, nobody understand monetary policy and you don't have any discussion about that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, I'd like to ask you a technical question, which I, I, I don't know anything about, but you know, when the U.S. government, um, borrows money or one one of the ways they get money is they sell you know they they make treasury bonds yeah. they sell them to the fed for federal reserve notes for yeah. dollars and that's yeah. how they fund a lot of things they do how does it work in canada you know when the government runs a huge deficit when they borrow money what's the relationship with the bank of canada and how like what's the process of them borrowing money do you could you shed some light on that for me? Yeah, yeah, it's it's about the same what's happening in with the Fed and in US. Uh, the federal government will issue bonds, and uh, and usually uh, this bond will be by by the public, uh, but also by the Bank of Canada. And that's what when there's no liquidity in the market. So if people don't want to buy Canadian bonds. Uh, the Bank of Canada will be there and will buy that. And actually, that's what the bank said during that crisis. They said, you know, we are opening our doors. We're ready. We have a program to buy Canadian uh, bonds and municipalities and provincial bonds also and corporate bonds and assets. And they can, they can buy everything we'll right buy now. buy everything. Yeah, they'll buy everything. <laughs> but the concept of yeah, if you have a deficit, you, you, you put that on the debt, and, and you are issuing um, uh, 
bonds and and uh, people will buy it, but also the bank will buy it. Yeah. Another thing regarding the, the Bank of Canada that maybe you know you could share with me is unique to some of the you know G seven whatever. Um, a couple of years ago, the Bank of Canada sold all of its gold reserves, yeah. Yeah. and you know in a time when we see. You know, perhaps the, the, the Federal Reserve hasn't been buying, but they're an enormous holder. And then you've got China and Russia who've been buying, you know, a lot over the last decade. You know, Italy, France with large holdings, you know. Uh, why is it that uh, the Canadian uh, Central Bank, the Bank of Canada, sold all their gold reserves? But, you know, I don't have a precise answer for that. But uh, what I think is maybe they were saying at that time, you know, the big asset, it's our natural resources in Canada. So if people want to buy natural resources like gas and, and others, they will have to ask for Canadian dollars. And so we'll always have maybe a strong price for the Canadian dollars because of our rich natural resources. And uh, but that's, that's, I don't know if it's uh, why they did that, but I think the only... Uh, kind of argument I can have in favor of that. It's because maybe Canada is rich with uh, natural resources and people will ask when they are buying all natural resources, they have to uh, give us Canadian dollars. So they are asking for Canadian dollars. So maybe the demand, uh, the, 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 the uh, demand, for Can- demand for Canadian dollars will always be there. But uh, I think for me, uh, uh, a, a central bank must have goal <laughs> because that's the um, if you look at the history history uh, goal was always there and um, to uh, protect uh, saviors and keeping uh, uh, keeping some money but when you don't have a link with goal you have printing money and as you know we didn't have that uh, the last link to for goal was with the US dollar in 1971 when the they closed the gold window. They were calling that at that time. So now the uh, Fed can print the money without having gold uh, to back that. But I, I, I agree with you. Other central banks are buying a lot of gold, like China, like Russian uh, central bank. And maybe they want to be ready if um, the, the American dollars is not the uh, international monetary unit anymore. So we'll see what will happen. Yeah, and so let's let's break into the monetary uh, components of this discussion then, because you know a very interesting discussion. Monetary history I find incredibly interesting, although and yeah. probably you as well. But we're probably in the minority of people. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but do you think you know you mentioned that the, the the central bank should have gold in the reserves so that they can there's some sort of restraint on the amounts of money that they can create. The first or question can- is. Yeah, go, or they, they, they would be able to keep more confidence in their money. Uh, right. Yeah. Do, you, ahead, do yeah. you think, you know, in a, in a free market system, a central bank is required or is, is a good thing? I don't think so. We didn't have a central bank in the 19th century. And, uh, and we had a kind of a gold center at that time. And we had a lot of prosperity, uh, real prosperity. Uh, and, um, but in Canada, uh, I think the Bank of Canada was created, if I'm 1936 or something like that, or 31, I don't remember. But uh, we can have private banking if, it's, if you have a system that is based on a kind of a gold standard. Absolutely. Right. And as you mentioned, 1971, Nixon closes the gold window as a 
quote unquote temporary measure. And of course, <laughs> yeah. as the saying goes, nothing is nothing is more permanent than a temporary government program. I, yeah, I, can't, absolutely. I can't remember who said that one either. <laughs> but um, but you know, one one like of my ta- like like uh, taxation. It was supposed to be temporary right. for the first war, World War War, and you know, right. we're, we're still paying income tax. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and adding to the ta- the things that are, that are taxable. But one of my you know, and I was. I've been a gold bug, you know, my entire adult life, you know, because of, of that. I saw um, the irresponsibility with which governments conducted monetary policy. I disagreed in the first place with the power of governments to be able to print the, the currency that's in use. And so I was interested in gold for, for those reasons and others as a hedge against the irresponsibility of, of basically abusing the money printer, that, that the, the power that they had. But it's not lost on me that the the fiat system that we have today, you can make a very strong case is directly a result of the failings of gold. You know, in the constitution in the US, it said that, you know, nothing but gold and silver yeah. should be used as money. And of course, yeah. that was just, uh, you know, ignored. That was yeah. one of those ones that was ignored. And then uh, everywhere else in the world, um, you know, just the governments, because of the power and control that they wield, were able to it, you know, nobody could even put up a fight. Just say, "Well, we hold all of it, anyways. Most of it's in our in our vaults and in the central banks." And um, yeah, we're going to just use the, this paper currency now. And what's what's everybody to do? So, as much as I, I you know, I was a gold bug before, um, I feel like the deficiencies in its inherent properties actually allow for you know some of the the detrimental aspects of the system we have today. Mm-hmm. What's your thought on that? But you're right that people are not using gold to uh, pay their grocery. But, um, you know, a government can print money uh, if, if they, they have some gold, but every time they are printing money, they're creating inflation and they know that. So the only way right now that the Fed and the American government can print these large amount of money uh, it's because you know the U.S. dollar is the um, universal uh, monetary unit, and they are exporting the inflation in other countries that will come. So, but uh, a best system will be to have a money, a paper money that will be based on gold. But uh, at the same time, uh, people using gold coins or gold money—I uh, don't see that in the near future. Um, and maybe that's why you develop, and not you, but the free market, and and develop the uh, Bitcoin. Uh, that can be an alternative for people to own something in their pocket and try to do transaction transaction with a uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not an expert on that, but I'm looking the market, and I know that uh, uh, it, uh, it they can have a, a that can be a, a kind of a a money that more people will use in the future. But also I'm looking at what's happening right now. Um, the Bitcoin is going down a little bit, gold is going up a little bit, but there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in the market right now. It's difficult to predict. Um, but I'm not an expert in Bitcoin, con, coin, sorry, but it can, it can, um, it can, uh, it can be uh, an alternative maybe for some people. Yeah, I think one of the issues with gold is that because of its character, you know, as you know, throughout human history, 
we've experimented with many different forms of money, seashells, salt, you know, yeah. stones, whatever. Yeah. And gold, you know, emerged as the dominant form of money for thousands of years because yeah. it had properties that allowed us to use it as money. It was scarce. It was malleable, yeah. divisible, fungible, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, you know, but one of the aspects that it has, and I think a drawback is that it will always require a certain degree of centralization. So even if, you know, government, if we went back to a gold standard, for one, one, I think a lot of people wouldn't have faith that we would stay there because we were on a gold standard and we came off it due to the Vietnam War, just government spending in general, let's say. Yeah. And so what's to stop that from happening again is one thing. But the other thing is, you, we're still centralizing, you know, that the power that's bestowed when someone controls, you know, the, the vast majority of the monetary instrument in a given society. And I think if that remains to be the case, we will still be at the mercy of, you know, politicians who are then able to use that power to do whatever they want. And, and, and in a very real way, and I think we're seeing that today in, in different manifestations in different places around the world, inhibit and encroach on the freedom of the individual by that control. And so, you know, I, I feel like gold was a, a very useful monetary instrument for a long time. Uh, but I think that the fact that it, it tends towards centralization and also in the modern era is more difficult to use as a form of money. You know, it's more difficult to transact. And if you want to transact, you know, online, let's say in the digital realm, you'll need to trust third parties in order to do that, to custody the gold and then transfer your ownership and all that. Um, I, I, I don't see, and, and this is coming from someone that used to advocate for a return to the gold standard, but I, I don't see it solving a lot of the problems. And in fact, I feel like free markets, you know, I, I feel like it won't facilitate free markets to the extent that we need to allow for freedom of the individual uh, across, across the world. And as for Bitcoin, of course, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a very big advocate. And I would yeah. just, you know, you, you mentioned price. Bitcoin's market cap is $100 billion right now. You know, global asset market caps are in the hundreds of trillions. Yeah. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny drop yeah. in the bucket. And so I would, you know, typically the advice is to zoom out on the price or maybe not even really consider it. I, I would kind of liken it to a dory on the, you know, floating in the water. And, a, you know, a cruise ship and a battleship are floating by. And in their wake, they create these big waves and it moves the dory up and down. Yeah. But I think the important thing to consider is, one, the dory is getting stronger and better all the time as development continues. Mm -hmm. And two, it continues to march in the direction that it was headed. The price variability, of course, is interesting. And people are, you know, a lot of people are motivated by greed. But mm -hmm. I think for people to focus on that is to miss the phenomenon and the technology that Bitcoin represents. And so, you know, just like uh, in, in your campaign, there's a lot of uh, misinformation about Bitcoin, you know, about it being used by yeah. drug dealers and terrorists and, and all of this kind of stuff, when fundamentally it's, it's, a, it's a new technology that requires sort of a paradigm shift in how you perceive um, scarcity and how you perceive, yeah. how you perceive what is possible in, in the digital realm. And so, you know, for me, as much as I, you know, I still feel almost an emotional pull towards gold. I don't see it solving the issues of centralization of power that have plagued us for, you know, most of human history. And I think Bitcoin in that there's no centralized authority and that each individual is both the one to custody their own savings in Bitcoin, as well as not requiring a third party to use it 
is a tremendously powerful and possibly revolutionary um, thing. But uh, the, the goal, the goal, the goal for goal is to have competition, and right. uh, you know, more than one hundred years ago in Canada, uh, the Bank of Montreal had their own money back with gold. So, so if you have bank, uh, independent, private sector bank that are issuing paper money back on gold, and they are in competition. Uh, you know, that's we we had a system like a little bit like that um, in the 19th century, like I said. So you need to have competition. You need to have banking competition. And and when I'm speaking about competition, I'm speaking about they can have their different monetary unit and people will go to the one that is uh, that they trust and they think that they want to uh, um, play with their gold reserve. So if you have more decentralized and more competition between uh, uh, banks, that, that's, a, that's another way to be kind of decentralized. But I don't know, I cannot predict the future, but I, mm. what I can see is yes, people, some people believe in, in Bitcoin and, and in gold also. Uh, and maybe that can be a competition Edition between uh, these two uh, new monetary uh, unit in the future. I don't know, but um, uh, what I know it's the fiat money <laughs> won't doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, that I, I completely agree with you. And just to to finish the, that conversation about gold, you know, I I was very interested in the free banking era as well, and 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 studied it. And you know, but the one fault in it is that what whatever characterized that era led us to this era. And so it, it meant that it was inherently corruptible in some way. It was inherently subject to rule by force or controlling interests or manipulation, etc. And so I don't have that much faith that that exclusively can, can get us out of the mess that, that we're currently yeah. in. And the other interesting thing to consider, and I won't spend too much time on it, but you know, scarcity is one of the very important components of what a, a human society decides to use for their money. And I, I structure it that way because I think a lot of people don't consider what money is very often. And I think a lot of people have very different definitions. I think, you know, I, I generally characterize it as the fundamental organizing mechanism for human economic interaction. Yeah. And so what, what properties does such a thing need to facilitate the most voluntary exchange between human beings for the purpose of elevating life for everybody. So what are the properties that we're looking for? And scarcity is definitely one of them. And what's interesting about Bitcoin, and again, this is part of the paradigm shift because most people think you can't have scarcity in the digital realm, but that's, that's in fact what part of the innovation that it's created. And what interestingly, what it's created that we actually can't seem to get in the physical realm is the idea of absolute scarcity. So gold is scarce. Let's say the supply of gold increased about 2% a year. We'll see what happens about mining in the deep depths of the ocean or asteroid mining or or whatever comes on. But if that were to occur, then we'd even get more than we're used to in terms of inflation with gold. The idea of absolute scarcity, that there's an absolute limit to how much of something that can be created regardless of the market demand that exists for something, Mm -hmm. is not something that we've had to contend with uh, very much in our lives. The only thing I can think of that is similar is our time. You know, once we spend it, we don't get it back. There's a limited yeah. supply for each of us. 
And I think Bitcoin replicates the scarcity of time in that there's only ever going to be a certain amount. And that the, the, the kind of chasm that people have to cross is, one, how can something digital even be scarce? But if it can be scarce, how can it be absolutely scarce? And I think, as is often said in the Bitcoin space, the Bitcoin rabbit hole goes very deep. There's many different considerations and there's many different areas that you need to study, monetary history, technology, you know, uh, network effects, all these things that you have to study to appreciate it to its fullest. But uh, I think in the era we're moving into, the market will continue to do what it's done for all of human history, which is look out on the world and say, we obviously need uh, money, you know, something to facilitate that exchange. What, what options that are available have the best properties to facilitate that? And if it ends up being gold, I, I couldn't be happier. That would be great. Yeah. But if it ends up being something else, then that's what the market is for, is for deciding these things. And I just, I, I think it's, we'll look back on this period in history and criticize this, uh, you know, this era, this generation of people for being so silly to think that we can abuse money in the way that we have and that we can create it out of thin air without any work involved in its creation mm -hmm. and that a central authority should be a party to every single transaction that happens. And I'll start my spiel in one sec, but I want to get your take on this. Socialism, I think we would both criticize you know, uh, pretty strongly. Yeah. And people generally think, well, the United States and Canada and Western democracies are, not, are, only, are, are on a scale of socialism. There's a lot of social welfare and there's a lot of government involvement, but or they're pretty... Cap or crony capitalism. Right, right. Yes. That's the best description, crony yeah. capitalism. However, I find it... Um, I struggle to, I find it interesting that people don't think about the fact that the government does sell a product and the product that they sell the most is the currency that they produce. And the fact that that currency is the other side of every single transaction that happens in an economy means that the government is on, every, on other, either side of every transaction. And I find that pretty socialism by any, so, socialist by any definition. But it is worse right now because the Bank of Canada and the finance minister in Canada, they, they have the authority and the power to buy stocks, uh, bonds and, and bailouts. So it's a kind of a, if they're doing that, it will be a kind of a nationalization of our economy. Uh, that can happen because they have the power to do it if, if they want. So it's a little bit scary. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and again, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so interested in Bitcoin is because it doesn't ask for permission. It just, it is money for the people and it serves that purpose. And whoever wants to engage in it can, and it allows them to. Whereas gold, there's permissions involved. Third parties, the trust of the institution offering the, the paper money on which the gold is based and that sort of stuff. But I won't, uh, I won't belabor that point. But I want to get your take on this because you just brought it up. Japan had an incredible economic boom in the 1980s, of course, right? And since that time, it's basically been very low growth. Um, you know, there's been a lot of government stimulus to just try to keep the economy afloat. And as you just mentioned, it's not, you know, most people don't see it as nationalization, but the central bank owns a huge portion of the equities in, in, in the Japanese stock market, for example. And I, you know, do you think coming out of this crisis, what I'm trying to get at is, do you think we will lose confidence in either the dollar or, or the government or the economic system and there'll be a crisis and a failure? Or do you think we'll see kind of a Jap Japanification of things where 
the government just continues to buy assets just to keep things. We'll have almost no growth and inequality will grow and social problems will grow, but we won't feel the, 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 the impact of a dramatic collapse. I think, you know, if I'm looking in the past and my, my example is what the government did in the crisis in 2008. So, yes, they were printing money and bail out everybody. And what was the result? Low growth uh, for, for a decade. So I think they will do the same thing. Uh, and, and they're ready to do it. They have all the tools to do it, legislative tool in Canada to do it. So yes, they will maybe bring more stimulus. But you know, the more stimulus you have, when I'm speaking about stimulus, monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, the more stimulus you, you, you put in the system, the next crisis will be bigger, bigger than the, the one before. And that's why this economic crisis will be bigger than the one we had in 2008. But I think they, they, they will, it's too bad to say, but uh, I don't see any change in their behavior. So, and the question is, what would be the impact on our monetary unit, on our Canadian dollar or the US dollar in US? <laughs> that can be a debasement, and, um, but we'll see. Uh, I don't want to scare any people, but uh, sure. you cannot, you know, you cannot... Um, uh, stimulate the economy with borrowed money or printed money. So that's a fact, and people yeah. must realize, realize that. I, I tend to fear that people are only going to realize that the hard way. You know, uh, you know reality is going to have to teach them that, not uh, any intellectual or, or educational exercise. Um, Maxime, I, I have lost track of time, so I want to be respectful yeah. of your time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to a close now. And I, I meant to actually bring this up on my last point about Bitcoin, but there's... Um, and again, you know, your, your own intellectual pursuits are yours. I don't want to force anything on you. But yeah. if you're interested, um, there's a book written by an Austrian economist, Dr. Seifdien Amus, and it's called uh, The Bitcoin Standard. And I just think it's a, it's a very, very concise but um, very contextual introduction to Bitcoin. It goes through the history of money, sound money, etc., and uh, as a thank you for, for coming on and, and speaking with me today, I'd be happy to send you my copy if you're willing to uh, receive it. Uh, for sure. First of all, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And yes, I want to learn more about Bitcoin. Uh, it's important for me. I like monetary history. So um, uh, it's, it's nice. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, I will read it. And actually, you're not the first one. Um, I did a... Uh, a phone conversation with another guy in Montreal that uh, is all in Bitcoin. And he told me, you must buy that book. So I want to have, have to buy it. I'll save my money. So thank you very much. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, and Maxine, the last part of, of this show is usually I just do a very quick word association. Yeah. Um, and if you'd like to pass on any of them, you're more no. than welcome to. None of them are, are no surprises. But I'll just say a word and you tell me the first thing that, that comes into your head. Okay. Democracy. Oh, my God. People. Government. Too big. Human rights. Fight for. Violence. No more. Trump. Different. <laughs> <laughs> Ego. Ego? Yes. Uh, too much wealth 
uh, we need more privacy respect hate speech there's no <laughs> freedom gold, gold. money <laughs> guns protection revolution more <laughs> quiet revolution <laughs> so socialism too bad family values inequality more freedom liberty never too much hell um uh, uh, my god uh okay let's um uh I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh, energy. Um, useful. And Bitcoin. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maxime, I've uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I know we could speak for hours, but uh, I want to let you go now. Maybe we'll pick it up some other time. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Is there any final thoughts or anywhere you wanted to direct people or anything to say before we sign off here? But uh, first of all, thank you very much to giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I hope we'll be able to uh, have another discussion in a couple of weeks or months from now, uh, doing a follow-up on, on that discussion. That would be interesting. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. And I want to invite uh, people to uh, go on our uh, YouTube channel, uh, the People's Party of Canada official YouTube channel, and they can go on Twitter also, uh, look at my tweet, uh, and um, Facebook. So my goal for me is to promote the freedom ideas uh, in Canada. And uh, I want to thank you for giving me that opportunity this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. And even as a Canadian who's uh, you know, somewhat cynical about politics. I have a tremendous amount of respect, gratitude, and admiration for the attitude that you've taken towards what you're doing and the, the principled approach that you're espousing. And uh, I just hope that more and more people are, are able to listen to you and, um, you know, are interested in what you have to say. So best of luck uh, with all your efforts in the future. And I'm sure we'll talk again. I appreciate that. Thank you. Same thing okay. for you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.